comes to my mind in this moment is that there seems to be an unusually large number of pregnant women here. (laughs) Have other people noticed that? And I've thought, wow, what a wonderful, incredible way for a human being to get rolling, huh? And there's one that I know of who has the mommy and the daddy are both here. And they're having their first child. So I just think that was a, a kind of blessing for all of us to have these new beings coming to joy, in joy, for joy. So there's a great teacher from Thailand, Ajahn Chah. He's a great master. He is the teacher of Jack Kornfield, who's the founder of this center. And Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go all the way, you will experience the peace that's beyond imagining. So at this retreat, we can expand this truth and you can feel the truth in it. Even if you don't, you haven't totally realized it, you, you can hear that and just go, yeah, I get that. We can expand that truth to include, if we let go a little, we can have a little joy. If we let go a lot, we can have a lot of joy. And we can let go all the way and have the joy that's beyond imagining, that's limitless, boundless And you can think for a moment of times where you've just really been let loose into joy. And you can feel like, yes, something did. There was some constriction of a self that that let go. I, I, ego, I didn't make it let go, but it let go. And there was this, this fountain of joy. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about what is this letting go that the Buddha is talking about and how does it relate in our lives and, and uh, how might we be able to uh, develop the capacity to let go? So uh, you might have heard, most many people by 2016 at Spirit Rock have heard that our beautiful Buddha 2,500 years ago got enlightened in his very first Dharma talk. He went to talk to some friends to try to tell them what he just realized. So you think he, he's the Buddha. He could have talked about anything. He could have talked about the realms of bliss and the devas, and he could have talked about the multi-universes, whatever, you know? So he sat there with his friends, and he said, Friends, this life is filled with suffering. First noble truth. There's sickness, there's old age, there's death, and there's presidential candidates <laughs> whose names we won't invoke. But I remember, I remember thinking, I was at one of my first retreats many 30-some years ago, it was in the 70s, and I remember it was either the, first, the end of the first night or the second night, and I was completely miserable. I was, my back hurt, I was tired, I was, what am I doing here? I'm out in the middle of the desert, I can't go home, I don't have a ride home. And it was the beginning of the treat, retreat syndrome, and I remember thinking, great, first this man, the 25, an old man, long ago, because I was young, of course, um, thinks up 
this first noble truth of suffering. And then he invents this practice where we have to sit here just to prove, just to prove that he's right. So I had an attitude against that, hearing that, that first night. Of course, notice that all these years later I'm still here, so I made it past the first night. And you will too. You've already made it to the second night. So the Buddha goes on to say, there's a second noble truth. And the cause of this suffering isn't because we're in these bodies that get sick and old. It's because we try to grasp the ungraspable. We try to hold on. We try to to get happiness and security out of things that are guaranteed to go away or to have sickness, old age, and death. So he said it's this grasping, this fighting with the way things are, grasping an aversion that brings about suffering. So, um, you know, I assume many of us here are Americans. There's actually a number of people who aren't, Amer- or a few people who are not Americans, but we're all pretty much westernized here. And we are in a time and a place where there's multi-billions of dollars spent to convince us that if we just get more and hold on to it and and do more and, you know, spend more, then we'll be happy, right? You know what I'm talking about. We were just heavily marketed on that. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it never works. It doesn't bring deep, lasting sense of well-being, no matter how much. I've known and worked with some people that are so rich, I can't even imagine how rich they are. They were so miserable. And it doesn't mean rich equals miserable. It just meant that having all that didn't bring the happiness. So since we all do it all the time, it's worth joking about a little. So Rita Redner, you know who she is? The comedian. She says, I don't plan on growing old gracefully. She said, I plan to have my face lift, lifted until my ears meet. You know, it's the image. <laughs> an image. So the Buddha would call that suffering. It's like trying, grasping, hoping for this thing that's never going to work. So um, fortunately, the Buddha goes on to the third noble truth, where he said, yes, even here in the midst of this realm, where everything changes and there can be loss and disappointment, in the middle of all of this, Freedom is possible, not when we're grasping, fighting, but when we open and let go. Freedom is possible in opening and letting go. Joy is possible as we open and let go, as we give up this fight against life. And there's a saying from the Buddha that I love, so I'll say it. He said, there is no greater joy than the joy of freedom. And he's talking about this freedom, the real deep freedom that comes through letting go. So um, when I was first hearing these teachings, the first thing I was thinking was, well, are you then saying I'm just supposed to roll over and be apathetic? I mean, what about the environment? Aren't I supposed to do something? I mean, am I supposed to just let go? You know, what about if my kid is sick? 
And, and the answer, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer, of course. If there's any way we can alleviate suffering for ourselves or for our planet, for anyone, we do whatever we can do to help, to serve, to alleviate suffering. But the truth is, and everybody can just think of today to realize this truth, that there's just a mass of human experience that includes discomfort, unpleasant experiences, sometimes very difficult, that cannot be fixed. They can only be open to. Or we can choose to close and suffer but they can't be fixed. So these teachings are really teaching us about how to meet these things that we can't change. So tonight I'm going to tell you a story that has some, uh, really has some of this quality of the freedom and the joy that's possible in letting go. And I thought a lot about if I should tell you this story tonight. And it's because... The story is starring my dear friend who died a month ago. And we're at a joy retreat. So I'm like, is that really the right, you know, topic at a joy retreat? But I'm thinking, yes, it is, because this is, I'm not telling you a story about a grieving, sad, sorrowful thing. Why wouldn't do that here at all? But I'm telling you a true story that I just lived through that is so filled with light and joy and freedom through letting go that I want to share it with you. And it just happened so recently that I'll share it with you. Somebody here has already heard a fair amount of it. Um, So my friend who died is named Stan. And Stan and his wife have been best friends with my husband and I for decades. We've done tons of things together. And Stan was a very vital, healthy, strong, happening, fun, funny guy. He, you know, worked out every day, five rhythms, five, you know, two times a week. He was a chiropractor, all about natural health. I had never known him to, no one had ever known him to have anything other than a cold, and that was like once. He never even took antibiotics in his entire adult life. Super healthy guy. So suddenly... Stan got a really bad flu, really bad flu. And then very suddenly, Stan is in, is in the emergency room. Stan's really sick. Stan is really sick. He has sepsis, which is an infection in his blood. Stan, within the first week, has five surgeries because the infection had made abscesses that had to be removed to save his life. And there was a lot of physical pain involved with this. Um, So with the surgeries and the pain, and by this time he's in ICU, um, if you can even imagine this, it's completely mentally crystal clear, there for every bit of this. Neither hand or arm, he can't move, or either leg. So he's flat in a bed. Imagine being there and you cannot, your head itches, you can't scratch it. You know, you might have sat here with an itch thinking, can I sit through this? Can I bear an itch? He's laying there. He can't lift. He can't press the call button for the nurse. He can't give himself a drink of water. So he's completely dependent on those of us around him for everything on the outside. So you might think, wow, if that was me, or I can say, wow, if it was me. I mean, wouldn't we think that might be? 
at the very least sort of awful, but maybe we'd be scared, maybe we'd be shut down, maybe we'd be mean or irritable or negative or bummed out in some way. I mean, this was extreme, right? It's like he's been in ICU now like two weeks. Every day he's centered, he's present, he's loving, he's funny, we're laughing, we laughed so much. He's grateful, grateful, every day. And we're like, whoa, that's, that's incredible. So he's, um, <clears throat> he was not complaining, it wasn't his thing, and he was very, he was working. He's a long-time Dharma practitioner, by the way. He, just to give you a flavor, he'd done five retreats in the last one year. He sits every day. This is many, many years. So he's a real practitioner. We did three of the retreats with them. So he's a practitioner. He's worked on himself a lot. And he's working on his mind in this condition, in this situation, to not go into victim, to not go into whining, to not go into, oh, my God, what if the test tomorrow? Oh, are they going to do another MRI, which was very physically difficult for him, painful? He didn't. He was working on not going just just not going there but just being present and be and his heart was so open by the level of let go let go can you imagine how much you have to let go of control let go of preference let go into the moment and surrender to be in this situation and it just opened his heart so much that he was just thanking he was just grateful all the time he was just thanking and appreciating everyone. So after um, three or four weeks of this, he slowly, slowly began getting better. And it was like, wow, that was a close call. Doctor said, that was a close call, but you're out of the woods. We're all really glad, and he's still dealing with a lot of pain. He's still flat on his back, but he's getting better. And um, if you've ever been even for a day in a hospital, you know that it's it's challenging. It's not a restful place. And he's trying to be quiet. He's trying to meditate. And there's almost a constant stream of nurses and doctors and cleaners and techs are coming and they're doing and poking and prodding and testing and turning and cleaning. You know, it's just, and they just walk in and turn on the light. Hi, Stan, we're here to take your blood. You know, and it's like, he would say, hello, instead of saying, get out of here, you know. And he, he had this amazing uh, attitude, much more open than I was some of the time. And um, so after three or four weeks, it was like at this point four weeks, you might think, well, okay, he had this really centered presence, but it starts wearing down, right? After three or four weeks in a bed without being able to move your arms or hands, he was becoming more loving. He was becoming lighter, clearer. And we all noticed it was like, whoa. Um, visitors would go, to, go into this room to visit Stan and would come out lit up. He had just let go so much, so much self, so much preference, so much letting go, 
that he had this lightness had begun to fill him and all this love and joy and it was contagious so we were in a way at the time catching it um, lighting up and being in the vivid present with him because he was working with that and so we joined it we entered it with him um, and he would tend to give us the credit saying oh, I couldn't be doing this without all your support and you know, but we're like, oh, we couldn't be doing this without the light that's beaming out of you. So um, one day I said, you know, I said, Stan, I don't think I could be in this condition that you're lying here in for one day and stay as present and loving and open as you are. And it's been a month. How are you doing it? And he said something he had learned at a meditation retreat a few decades earlier. And he learned it not just, he heard the teaching, but then he had to practice it. And the teaching, and he answered the question, how are you doing it? He said, I'm doing this one breath at a time. And he actually was. He was really practicing hour after hour, day after day. And when he had learned that, he heard it in a Dharma talk, but then he had some pain he was dealing with in his body. And he began practicing one breath at a time, decades later, that practice was there for him. Not that he hadn't been practicing, but he hadn't had to do one breath at a time. But he had it. It was under, it was under his belt. Um, another time, it had been a hard day. And I said, at the end of the day, I said, well, how, how are you doing? With this, and he said, "Well, and I, you know, I, I'm not giving you the full details, but it was quite an ordeal. It was just one thing after the next. It just kept coming." And um, he said, "Well, just when you think they can't throw anything else at you," and then he t- he paused. So I assumed he was going to say the obvious: they throw something you didn't expect. That's what I thought he'd say because that's what was happening. But what happened was he said, just when you think they can't throw anything else at you, and he paused and he said, you find more freedom. And I was like, whoa. Because it was obvious. He, this was, he, wasn't, he wasn't like doing this Dharma thing. He was being it. This is now what was happening. This was his experience. He was just answering the question. And you could feel this spaciousness that was opening in him by having to open, open to so many unpleasant moments. But that was, his other choice was to, would have been to close and to fight it, and that would have been direct path to real suffering. So Stan experienced a lot of physical pain and not a whole lot of suffering. He didn't add a lot on to the experience, which is really something. So now we're five or six weeks into the hospital, and we're still getting better. Now the doctor said, now we're just waiting for the room to open up in the rehab. You know, he's still on his back. He was still dealing with pain, but he's strong enough. He's well enough now. He doesn't have to be in the hospital. So, wow, that's pretty uplifting. And then a setback, you know, an infection, more transfusions, more this, more that. Okay? Okay, then it's all about getting better again. Okay, we're getting better again. Physical therapy, more this, more that. 
And it started to be um, up and down, and um, quite up and down. And it wasn't just little ups and downs. There was a big amount of pain, and it was ups and downs that go from you're getting well to you could die. So that's what we might call a big up and down. So it doesn't get much bigger. And he was riding these huge waves of disappointment and change, you know, that were actually knocking us, who were on the sort of team around him. You know, wow, it was intense, up and down. He was riding these waves with so much grace. He had this equanimity happening. Um, he stayed loving. He stayed clear. His sense of humor kept coming. I mean, of course, there was a lot of time he was quiet. He was resting. A lot of time with his eyes closed. And then um, when he was awake, he became like a fountain of gratitude and appreciation. And I know today Jane and James talked about the power of gratitude and appreciation because now he being on this, what we were now at this point, we're calling it a retreat. We were all on a retreat, an intensive retreat that we hadn't planned on. And um, he, um, if you've done many retreats, or even at this one in a few days, you'll notice you start getting very sensitive, very sensitive. And um, so you can imagine he'd been on this retreat now five or six weeks. So he, someone would walk in the room, even someone he didn't know, which happened almost every day, by the way, in a hospital. Um, and he would perceive them. He would sense their essential gift. And often he would tell them so. He's laying in this bed, this total stranger. So this one lab tech who had made a connection with him because he was a real friendly she had to do procedures in front of us often, and I could see she was nervous trying to get the vein or whatever. He would be talking to her, drawing her out, how are your kids, you know. And um, after he'd been silent for hours, but when somebody came, he would often make these connections. So he says to her one day, um, you know, you when you find a vein, you you do that with so much sensitivity and I want to thank you, and I want you to know, I think you have a gift working this way with people. And you could just tell no one had ever said anything like that to her. She's just in there doing it, and she said, really? You know, you could just say, thank you. And it's just like she's been blessed by this beautiful, beaming guy. And another time, I was in the room when the cleaning woman comes in, and if you'd been time in a hospital, you know, the cleaning people... They just come and go. They're like invisible. You don't talk. They don't talk. They just come in and out, day or night. So this woman comes in, and she's doing her thing, and Stan says hi, and she looks up, you know, and he, you know, somehow got her to come over where he could talk to her, because his hand wasn't working. Come here, and she's like, "What did I do wrong?" And he comes. He said, "I want to tell you something, because you might not know." But when you enter the room, you come in so gently, so softly and quietly that it's actually healing for me. She said, he said, when you've been in the hospital a long time, these little things matter so much. And I want you to know that you're helping people every day. And she said, thank you. You know, you're just like, 
No one ever thanked me before. And so you get the picture. Stan's, he wasn't trying to do this. This is what was coming through him at this thing. And, you know, oh my God, he was thanking us for the bone broth or the way we touched his foot or whatever. But one day this doctor who we had joked about at certain times along the month that he didn't have the best bedside manner, that's putting it mildly, he had to come in one day and and say some hard news, uh, you know, another batch of hard news. And so Stan, in, in his phase of all this gratitude, he said, uh, Doctor, I really want to thank you for your honesty. I want that honesty. I really appreciate your clarity. Doctor all right, you know, <laughs> okay. But he was just, he was finding, and again, I don't think he was doing it. It was happening. He was noticing, he was appreciating the littlest things in his day. You know, the, the littlest, the, the water, this water is cooler. I really love that. Thank you for the ice cubes. He was noticing the littlest things in his life and in other people and appreciating, and it was like, Oh, it was causing this buoyancy. One day he had been in there for five weeks and never outside once. And he, you know, they live in Inverness or outside people. You can imagine no fresh air for five weeks in a hospital. And finally the, the physical therapist who had totally fallen in love with Stan puts him on this special kind of wheelchair and rolls him outside. And Stan goes ecstatic. He's just having, he's like a kid. He was only out there for like 10 or 15 minutes, but he was so happy. And he was celebrating about it for hours afterwards, telling us about the way the light is and the way the breeze and all the smell of the air. You know, and it just, then we're all celebrating. And we weren't sitting around. Not that we knew he was going to die, but it was heavy what he was dealing with. But what he was dealing with was heavy, but the field around him was light. Most of the time, it was loving, and there was a lot of joy. Um, when they we would we would play a lot, and 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 celebrate things and goofy things. I mean, it was like he was so out of ordinary mind that we just joined. So we would be, you know, he learned one day again. The occupational therapist taught him how to hold his glass of water and take a drink. First time in five weeks or something that he could do that. We're all like cheering, yay, you took a drink of water. And he said, wow, you know, this guy is a doctor. He said, yeah, my next big accomplishment in life is that I'm going to learn to use my phone. You know, and he was just, he was having fun with how it is. And we were having fun. So um, by the seventh week in the hospital, it was a lot of ups and downs, big ones. Two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. It was, it was a really bumpy thing. And one day uh, he said, well, I'm okay if this is just how my life is right now. I'm on intensive retreat. It's not about will my blood count change. It's not about how many days till they got a room in rehab. This is just it. He said, I'm okay. But he said, as soon as I want it different, I'm in big trouble. And then, which is a Dharma teaching, of course, but then he goes, he starts playing with, and he starts growling like a bear or something. He goes, big trouble. And we start going, big trouble. And we start having fun playing with the big trouble. 
thing. I mean, it was, I'm just, it was like children. We were just not in the constricted little grasping self. We were having this time being together. So um, <clears throat> a few days later, it had been a very hard couple of days. We hadn't ta- he hadn't talked much or opened his eyes much. It was difficult. Stuff was happening in his breathing. And... Um, but the, the, the all the sort of medical team, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, everybody, they kept talking about his recovery, and that was their that's their job. They're they're there to heal. This is something we're going to get over, and we're going to get you well. But these few really hard days, um, you know, I know I was thinking like, is he could he possibly live through this? This is really getting intense. And but um, he's the one who brought it up one evening when I was there and his wife was there. And he said, you know, if I, if I get to live longer, I'm all in. I'm there for that. And he said, that, and I've asked myself, why would I want to live longer? As he's laying on this intensive retreat, and he said, and I realize it's because I would get to share more love. And I see now that's the most important thing to me. And then he said, he looked right at his wife, and he said, but if it's my time to die, I can accept that. And it was like, well, okay. So when you can really accept, he wasn't faking it, when you can really accept living and recuperating, they said it would take him at least a year to get back his full physical function after that much illness, he was willing, he was ready to accept that, or he was ready to accept dying. We call that radical acceptance. And, and when he said it, it wasn't heavy. It wasn't glum. It was poignant, but there was something about it that was actually beautiful. There was this um, lightness of being. He had let go so much that it was a freedom that was speaking, saying, if it's my time to die, I can accept it. So he was tasting that freedom that the Buddha said is possible when we let go. Freedom to be with this as it is, even this. So at about... um, it wasn't about at seven and a half weeks into this ordeal, this marathon that we were all running together. Um, we were there, just happened to be there when he took this major downturn. It was quite obvious to me that he was starting to die. His body was starting. It was the beginning of a death process. And um, we were there in the hospital, being there. He was. His eyes were closed. He was labored breathing, but no... No problem, no resistance. He was completely awake and conscious. He knew who was there. He knew every, he knew what was going on, but he was way in, just one breath at a time. And we were there. And at a certain point in this dying cycle, he he looked around. He opened his eyes, which I could tell was an effort, but it was it was his gift. And he just looked at each one of us in the eye. And we'd been the ones who'd really been there every day for seven and a half weeks. And without saying any words, you could just feel him saying, thank you, I love you, 
I'm fine. Goodbye. You could feel it. And he did that, and then he closed his eyes. Then there was more breathing and more hanging out and time. I don't have any idea of the amount of time at this point because it was pretty much out of time at this point. But um, he didn't open his eyes anymore, but he had a few more words to say. He said, end of life, no fear. And I just said, thank you, Stan. Wow, what a gift. A gift you just gave us because we know you're okay, and a gift you gave us because that place in every body ego that thinks, I'm afraid of dying. He's sitting there going, no fear. Death is not an emergency. It's just what's happening next. It was a beautiful, beautiful gift. And so the friends and family all arrived, the circle Everybody was there. He had a magnificent, uh, victorious, beautiful, peaceful, um, no resistance, completely conscious death. And, um, you know, of course, of course it's sad to lose a dear friend. It is sad. Um, But the light and the freedom and the joy that went all the way through this illness and his death, and following his death, there was a lot of this energy moving through. Many of us were experiencing. That energy has been so inspiring and so uplifting that it's really balanced the grief. So, yes, there's grief, and there's this beautiful (coughs) truth. And there's, you can't, you can't say that it wasn't, isn't, beautiful, even though it's sad to lose a friend. I'm not sad for him. He had an incredible life and death. So the Buddha um, said, freedom is possible. We say freedom and joy are possible when we let go. When we stop all this fighting with life. So when he said I'm doing it one breath at a time. He meant that I'm practicing being in this moment as it is, and I'm letting go for just this moment. And that's all. That's what he meant, one breath at a time. You just do it this moment. You can't let go from an hour from now. You let go right now. And he, he's letting go of all the attachment to every kind of comfort and preference, he's letting go, letting go of his plans, his, his past, you know, his, his, his fun past, his fun-looking future. Um, he was letting go of fighting with reality and opening. It's like this right now. So as he let go, let go, what he was really letting go of is the small suffering self. You letting, he's letting go of the identity with that self. And what remained was this beautiful, luminous, free, joyful, wise love, presence. That's what was there when he let go. And it wasn't just at the end, it was kind of all the way through. But it kept building. Um, 
it was, you know, needless to say, just an extraordinary gift to get to share this with him. Um, and of course, I don't want to make any fantasy that this was in any way easy or preferable, not to him, not to any of us. It wasn't always easy. And the joy that was there wasn't always laughing and jokes. Sometimes it was this very deep peace, silent space that we were just sitting in together. And sometimes there was this rich fulfillment, contentment thing going on. He'd be there resting, uh, not asleep, but his eyes were closed, and he'd have this little like half-Buddha smile, and I'm just thinking, that's amazing. (laughs) He's just content, happy in this moment as it was, as it is. So I'm sharing this story um, because there's such important lessons in it for me, and I hope that you can get them, you know, that from his life and death. And one of the big ones is that Stan practiced. He attended many retreats. He, pra- he sat every day. And so one of the important things we can learn is that rather than waiting until something like this might occur to us or a loved one and hope, wow, if I get in that, I hope I can let go, we can practice now like he did. We can learn. We can practice daily. We can have the intention we can to, to practice with the little, the little letting goes, the, the knee pain for I'll let go of the aversion for one more moment. You know, and he said he, he learned that years ago to do it one breath at a time. So we can practice now. Um, one of the most direct ways I know to learn and practice about letting go is through the body. So just now for a moment, you don't have to change your position, but just take, you can close or open your eyes, but you don't have to move. Just notice, just look in your body and find something, maybe your shoulder, maybe your belly, where you can just relax a little. Let go. Let your shoulder relax. Let your belly soften. And then look around. Maybe there's a really subtle, tiny little holding. Maybe your jaw. Just let go a little more. Relax your belly, soften. Okay, you can open your eyes that you might have noticed just a couple moments of softening, of letting go at the level of body tension. You might have, did you notice a kind of quietness or openness open up? Raise your hand if you notice that. Yeah, it's right here. This once many years ago, um, a Tibetan Rinpoche was asked, Rinpoche, through a translator, what is ego? And he said, ego is tension. 
This was many years ago in my arrogant, I'm a psychotherapist and I know what an ego is. And, you know, that was a bad translation. I had this whole little arrogant opinion about this answer. And many years passed, lots and lots of practice, experience. Now, if you ask me, Deborah, what is ego? I would say, ego can be experienced as tension. If you directly experience any time, any grasping, any aversion, try to relax while you're being right. You know, when you're... Yeah, (laughs) think about it. Try to relax while you're being judgmental. Every, every, all that ego activity has an associated body tension. And sometimes, of course, mostly, it's completely unconscious. And then we can actually intentionally practice relaxing, opening at the level of the body. And it trains the mind. Freedom is possible. Letting go is possible. So, you know, at the stoplight or at the line at the bank, you know, I'm busy, don't they know? You know, when you're just impatient or whatever it is, you can practice, ah, let go. What can I find in my body to let go of? And just see how that affects the mind. So in our practice here and at our home practice, every time that you return back to the body and breath, you're usually letting go of some fantasy or some story or some plan or some thing that you're off thinking about. And then there's this drop it, this let go and return. And every single time you do that, you are training the body-mind to let go. It's a tiny let go, but that's that's how you practice. Every time... You can accept a moment as it is. Let's say it's a boredom moment or a restless moment. And for one moment, if you can let yourself be, let it be for this moment as it is, you're practicing the art of letting go. Every moment you do the self-compassion that Jane taught, you're letting go of self-judgment. You're, 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 there's a thing. You could stay in it. You could stay identified in that whole story, or you can just go, oh, I'm going to open my heart instead. <laughs> you're learning about letting go. So when you do this letting go, one moment at a time, like Stan did right before my eyes, you also, like he did, are letting go of the small suffering self. The little ego bundle, as one of my teachers calls it, the beloved little bundle of ego. And when we release, even for a moment, that identity, that contracted self, what remains? Presence, love, well-being, joy, even in the middle of very difficult situations. Pema Children, in case you, if you haven't heard of her, she's a wonderful American Buddhist teacher. And she says there's three qualities that bring joy and awakening. They are precision, gentleness, and the ability to let go. 
So we know from being here on retreat, the precision is that clarity. Let's say you're sitting here, you're really tired, you're wanting, wanting a double cappuccino. You're fantasizing, you're imagining, you're planning your trip to town. And in the middle of all this, you, um, you just notice, oh, that's wanting. Just that simple clarity of knowing that's a moment of wanting. That's precision. That's wanting. Then at the same time, the, the gentleness she refers to is, oh, we've been talking about kindness, so instead of like, oh, that's wanting, I'm, I'm bad. It's like, oh, wanting. Just gentle. Oh, it's just wanting. So that's the precision and the gentleness. And then she goes on and she says, you can work with precision and gentleness, but letting go is not as easy. Rather, it's something that happens as a result of working with precision and gentleness. As you work with being faithful to the practice, being as precise and simultaneously as kind as you can, the ability to let go seems to happen to you. You can't force it. So I just want to say a touch about the gratitude because it's such a big part of this story and it was such a big part of this beautiful journey that I went on with Stan. He had always been a loving and a grateful type of person. And I don't know, and there's questions you think after a person dies, oh, I wish I would have asked, you know. I don't know how much he had intentionally practiced it in the way that the practices have been taught today about gratitude and um, uh, appreciation. Um, But I know that he, by the time he was there in that hospital, it was streaming through him. And I know that um, we can be inspired by hearing about what happened and realizing that using gratitude and appreciation can reconnect us to that natural inherent well-being that's right here, even in the most difficult situations. And so, uh, like my husband and I have a really fun gratitude practice that we've done together for years. Most days we take a hike on this trail right by our house, and we have a little game that is the, from what the time we go through gratitude gate that's at the top of the tra- at the bottom of the trail till the first big turn. The only things we talk about are gratitudes and appreciations, and it's it's fun. And we do it every day. As long as he's, if he's there, we do it every day. If he's not there, I do it by myself. But I so recommend it because it starts to, the more you do it, it starts to run through you as a set point, more of a point of view through which, a lens through which you can see life. And it's really good to tune into the little things, the little blessings. So, as I said, I wondered if I should take a stab at trying to talk about Stan's death at a joy retreat. Um, but again, I did it because of that saying from the Buddha, which I want to repeat because I love it so much. He said, there is no greater joy than the joy of freedom. And he went on to say, freedom comes through letting go. 
So I wanted to tell this story because I really, if there's a point, the point is that ordinary people like every one of you and me and Stan can touch freedom and joy as we let go. It's not just something for someone else off in a faraway country. So I'll finish with a little thing that a teacher I was studying once with in Thailand, quite a character, but he's also considered quite a master meditation teacher, Ajahn Jimnian. He said, gradually, with practice, you move through this suffering world, but you're not caught in the suffering You abide in a peaceful heart, and life becomes joyful. So let's just take a moment, close our eyes. And just see right now again if there's a place in your body you can relax a little more. Let your belly soften. Just letting go in the body. May all beings everywhere know the great joy, the great relief of letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.